0: or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed, teaching you to become your own best coach. Welcome back. And I thought following last last week's podcast on luck that I could follow up with something perhaps even more interesting. And I'm tentatively calling the title of today's talk, You've Got to Be Kidding. Lucky charms, rituals, and superstitions actually work? (laughs) I like that. What is superstition? Well, superstition, it's the irrational belief that an object or a behavior, something that you do, has the power to influence an outcome, even when there's no logical, logical connection between the two. And relying on lucky charms, well that's superstitious right but the fact is and this is where you know at first blush it's a little bit startling the fact remains that lucky charms superstitions they actually work well sort of (laughs) let's get into that today you know researchers have found that people who believe that they have luck on their side they feel a greater sense of what's called self-efficacy. And that's the belief that that they can do what they, they set out to do. And having this belief or this confidence, it actually boosts mental and physical performance. Now, many athletes, for example, they tend to be deeply superstitious. In one study, people who were told that the golf ball they were using happened to be the lucky ball or a lucky ball or... Such. Well, the people that were handed the lucky golf ball, they actually putted better than than those who weren't told that. So if I handed you a lucky golf ball and said, you know what, this, this ball, everyone that uses it, they take two strokes off their putting. Well, if you took that ball with that belief on some level, not necessarily consciously. Statistically speaking, you would perform better with that ball than those who don't believe they have the lucky ball. Well, have you ever heard of Chicken Man? Well, that would be Hall of Fame third baseman Wade Boggs. Now, Wade Boggs was known for his superstitions, and one of them was to eat, so they say, a whole chicken before every game. Jim Rice once called Boggs Chicken Man because of this. Wade Boggs actually woke up the same time every day. And he ran sprints at exactly 7.17 p.m. Well, certainly uh, helped his game, didn't it? He was a Hall of Famer. And why? Why does this happen? Why do certain rituals or charms, why, why do they help us? Well, it's no it's a psychological phenomenon known as the placebo effect. In essence, if you believe something, if I tell you that This pill that I just concocted in my laboratory is going to bring you good luck. It's going to make you a better athlete, a better surgeon, a better teacher. And if you take this pill, you'll see, well, chances are, if you believe me, and I'm a credible guy, and you take the pill, it's going to influence your actions and your attitudes in a positive way, what we believe, right? Then there's what I call the prophylactic charms. Now, these are charms that don't necessarily bring us luck, but indirectly they do because they ward off bad luck. You know, the evil eye, getting sick, you know, knocking on wood. Don't we all kind of know about knocking on wood? Where does that come from? Well, the ancient Celtic cultures who believed that spirits resided in trees would knock on the tree trunk to release the spirits, the very beneficial spirits that would come and protect, knocking on wood. Now, I grew up with horseshoes hanging over our garage, and always the arms of the horseshoe had to point up so that the luck would stay in the horseshoe. If the horseshoe ever tilted over, the luck would fall out, and, man, you'd have a bad day. We also had ceramic elephants. I don't know where that came from. But the trunk had to point towards the front door, thereby protecting what comes in that door. I had one good luck charm, which was my St. Christopher medal, which I got as a gift when I graduated eighth grade. And I was a pole vaulter. And I would have my St. Christopher medal. And I don't think I ever took a vault without once first touching that medal. Now, From what I've read, the St. Christopher Medal, particularly, it's great for overcoming adversity and giving the courage to follow one's destiny. Well, I didn't particularly know that when I was a freshman in high school, but nevertheless, I knew it wasn't going to hurt, and eh, I relied on St. Christopher to kind of deflect my overthinking in the moment just before Starting the vault. And speaking of St. Christopher and my old medal, I never, don't know what happened to that medal, but I mean, I don't know about other religions, but I got to tell you, growing up Italian and Catholic, well, what we had was a pantheon of saints. No matter what you needed, there was always a saint that you could pray to. Now, if you lost something, you'd pray to St. Anthony, St. Anthony would help you find something. So you didn't have to feel all that anxiety. Oh, I'll never find it. You'd pray to St. Anthony. My favorite Saint happened to be St. Rocco. He's a little known Saint, but he was my favorite Saint because every August, I grew up in Fort Lee, New Jersey, at the end of our block, we had the Feast of St. Rocco, which is a big event for us kids, I gotta tell you. And St. Rocco, this is the 94th anniversary this coming August. And he was known for invoking his power of intercession for good health, for protection against epidemics, and all types of contagious diseases. I guess I should have been praying to St. Rocco during our COVID years, but I just realized that from my research the other day, my St. Rocco research. And then there was Aunt Tessie. Now, Aunt Tessie was many things. We lived in a two family house. I lived upstairs, Aunt Tessie lived downstairs. And Aunt Tessie, well, she was kind of the matriarch who had the secret of warding off the malocchio, the evil eye. And what she would do, or at least what I observed, someone would come over with a complaint to Aunt Tessie, whether it was a headache, a backache, or just feeling sick. And most superstitious people on our block would feel that someone put the evil eye on them. The reason they were not feeling well or had a headache was because someone had it out for them. So the ritual that Antesi performed uh, was geared to remove the evil eye. And what she would do, she would get a dish, a soup dish, and she'd fill it with water. And then she would drop some drops of olive oil in the water as and watched as the the olive oil dispersed and she would say the secret prayer i i can't remember but i think she said it was a, from saint catherine i'm not sure but she would say this secret prayer and i often asked her what was the prayer and but she wouldn't tell me she said it could only be handed down from mother to daughter now she was supposed to hand it down to my cousin celeste and to this day, I don't think Celeste remembers it or ever knew it, but we lost that tradition. <laughs> but, but I got to tell you, people used to come from all over. Uh, there would always be somebody coming in and that soup bowl would always be coming out and the person would always be leaving feeling quite relieved, refreshed, and healed. The power of ridding the Molochio, getting rid of bad luck. Now, before going on, let me tell you that this podcast is brought to you by my latest book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. So if you want to stop worrying, if you want to live more spontaneously, and if you want to rewire your brain to be more productive and less insecure, how about you hop over to Amazon and take a look? And now back to the evil eye and all that stuff and luck. Now, I'm going to catch some heat for what I'm about to say, but you know what? I don't see a big difference between hypnosis and Aunt Tessie's incantations. Well, let me explain. Before I went to graduate school for my PhD, I was the dean of students of a small college, and I used to arrange for all the entertainment for the students. And every year, I would... I would uh, arrange for a hypnotist to come in, a stage hypnotist. There's a difference between stage and clinical hypnosis, obviously. And what's interesting is what a stage hypnotist does. Well, let me tell you what this guy did. He'd get up on the stage and he'd say, everybody stand up. Everybody in the audience would stand up. And he'd say, I'm going to hypnotize you right now. You may not realize it, but you will not be able to sit down. Now, I will tell you to sit down, but you won't be able to. So then he goes, sit down. And 98% of the audience sits down. And maybe you get six or seven people still standing. Now we got something. Are they hypnotized? (laughs) Well, at least we know these are the most suggestible people in the audience because these are the people who felt they couldn't sit down. So he would bring up these six or seven people, put them on stage, and they'd do just about anything he said. They'd bark like dogs, quack like ducks, and all kinds of things because they felt they were hypnotized. These were highly suggestible people. Now, I used to use hypnosis early on in my practice, not the quacking like a dog, (laughs) quacking like a dog, barking like a dog kind of hypnosis, but clinical hypnosis. And I was quite successful. I used to use it for uh, cigarette smoking, losing weight, more or less symptomatic things that could be remedied with a one-session hypnotic thing. And I believed that my job as, as a hypnotist in that early part of my career was to get someone to believe That I was really hypnotizing them because if I could get them to believe, then I knew the power of belief would go a long way after they left the office. And lo and behold, it worked. I helped lots of people stop smoking, lose weight. But the one thing I didn't find was that hypnosis for general practice just didn't, it didn't go the distance. People would revert back to their old ways. I eventually abandoned hypnosis. But I did feel that I learned something about belief. And who knows, maybe part of psychology is to get people to believe in themselves. And I don't think that's a small thing. If I could take someone that's insecure and get them to realize there's nothing in their way, to feel more secure, to risk believing in themselves, to risk self-trusting, if they can believe that and if I can inculcate that into their mind. And if they trust me enough to feel that I'm able to get that to happen in them, yeah, all this kind of interplay of belief can make a difference. Now, why? Why is belief so powerful? Charms, superstitions, that they can actually change our performance. Well, according to my son-in-law, who happened to be a premier pitcher at UPenn, at least for the moment when an athlete straps, you know, those batting gloves on and off, on and off a certain amount of times or taps the bat on the plate one or two times or crosses themselves. In a sense, what's happening in that moment is they're taking the anxiety of the moment and deflecting it, right? They're deflecting it with the comfort and support of, well, good luck. And if you believe that that ritual... Is somehow going to benefit you? Well, it probably will, and subconsciously for that moment, you're feeling less insecure about life's challenges. And I was talking to my son-in-law, and I said, "Well, well, what happens, you know, to the batter that goes into a slump, and he still keeps doing his ritual? Why does he keep doing it? It's obviously not helping." And my conclusion was that because that batter is afraid to stop doing the ritual because hey, you never know that you know what might happen if I abandon this, and if I stick with it, eventually the good luck's going to return. So we we do all of this kind of stuff, not necessarily kind, we're not really actively thinking, well, this is going to do that. But we have that in our nature, don't we? I mean, I know that in all of my reading that superstitious behavior goes way back. In fact, it was much more prevalent in olden times than it is today. I know in Roman times they would they would look towards the sky for an omen, whether the birds would fly from east to west, or whether there was lightning, and this would all portend certain events to occur or not occur. And there have always been soothsayers and people that seem to have a bead on uh, trying to interpret things of the extra natural. So we have we have a kind of DNA connection to superstition. And I look at that in a way where it says to me that we happen to be very vulnerable creatures and we don't have wings to fly away from adversity or claws to protect ourselves. You know, we're quite vulnerable in this world. And sometimes that vulnerability or that insecurity, even when it's unfounded, well, we, we tend to look for a little support. We tend to look for something to lean on to make us feel less vulnerable. And that's why the lucky golf ball or eating a whole chicken before a game, that's why certain things just make us calm down a bit because we feel a little bit more in control and a little bit less vulnerable. What about you? Do you have lucky charms? How about do you have a lucky number? Are certain numbers unlucky for you? I remember I grew up with number 13. Beware of number 13. I don't know why. I know some cultures find it uh, a very positive number. You know, and then there's all of the numerology stuff, which I know nothing about. And then uh, we have certain perfumes, certain aftershaves that we wear for special occasions. But sometimes the compulsion toward our ritual becomes somewhat limiting. I know with certain OCD kind of uh, obsessions and compulsions, you may have to quite literally uh, tap the car roof three times before you get in or check the light switch 15 times before you leave the house or all these kind of things you become a slave to because essentially you're trying to feel more in control. But take it a step deeper. And what are you doing? Well, you're trying to control fate. So if insecurity has tethered itself to a certain ritual and you are insecure enough, then it's only the ritual that's going to protect you. So you see where the interplay of superstition, rituals, lucky charms, rabbit's foot, or is it rabbit's feet, <laughs> rabbit foot, four-leaf clovers, we're trying to feel less vulnerable. We're trying to control fate now we know we can't control fate what's what will be will be but there's still another part of us a primitive part of us that says yeah you never know maybe and if you're sitting there pompously saying well i don't have any superstitions okay well the next time you have a friend come over and say boy you haven't been sick in a year don't you say knock wood <laughs> I, I i do wish you well and uh, next week, I, I don't know if I can get any more mileage out of this good luck, lucky charm kind of theme, but I, I do enjoy it. And I sure wish I had that incantation from Tessie. but who knows, right? So the next time uh, you're feeling a bit unlucky, uh, see, what, see what kind of response you have to that. Or the next time you're about to get up to the plate at Yankee Stadium, see what you do prior to just swinging that bat. All right, I wish you well. And visit my website, by the way, selfcoaching.net, where you could learn a little bit more about my philosophy and other books. And until next time, just remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, well, it's not an option. And by definition, victims are powerless, and you're not powerless. With or without your lucky charms, you're not powerless. And remember, everything's hard until you make it simple so join me every week and how about we make it simple Leave it together yourself. reach out for your dreams don't surrender there is more than it seems hold on and fight